I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We continue today with part two of our study of the office of elders. And if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to at least go back and listen to part one so that you can stitch these two together and make some sense of them. Uh, But at the very least, it's, it's important for you to know that last Sunday we focused our attention on understanding from the Bible that elders are the God-appointed office of spiritual leaders to shepherd his church. Um, God didn't design his church to be ruled by one man, the pastor, but a plurality of elders because pastors are elders and elders are pastors. Uh, Biblically, there's no spiritual distinction. Um, In the Bible, we see that the terms elder, overseer, and pastor, which just means shepherd, uh, are all interchangeable terms referring to the one and same office. And so all elders vocational or not, are called to the same high calling and responsibility of shepherding or pastoring the church. Now today, as we continue our study, we focus this morning on the qualifications of elders as listed in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. We'll read both passages starting with 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 down to verse 7. This is what God's word says. Paul writes to Timothy, the saying is trustworthy If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now, turn with me a little bit forward to Titus chapter 1, right after 2 Timothy. Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9 This is Paul writing to Titus, who was a young pastor on the island of Crete. uh, Crete. Paul says this in Titus chapter 1, verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we have opened your word, Would you now open our hearts and our minds to receive your good and loving instruction for your precious church. Show us Christ who is the rightful head over his church. In his name we pray. Amen. As we discussed at length last week, whenever we think about church polity, or fancy way of saying church government, we must begin with the basic conviction that God is the one who has established and builds his church. And as her rightful architect, he has given us a precise blueprint in his word 
which we would be foolish and arrogant to ignore. You know, it's kind of like when God instructed Moses on Mount Sinai to build a tabernacle. And God said to Moses, make sure you build it exactly according to the pattern which I show you on this mountain. Because only when you build it exactly according to that pattern, then my glory will be properly depicted and revealed through it. But can you, can you imagine if Moses just decided on a whim to follow it loosely? Okay, God, you said build a mercy seat out of pure gold. How about coppers? Close enough. Oh, you want the uh, curtains to be made out of goat's hair? Here's Aaron's beard. You know, just use that hair. I mean, that's just that's ridiculous. That's irreverent. But as, as irreverent as that sounds, that's kind of the mindset with which we so often approach the church. We just build it however we please. And so especially as it pertains to God's appointed spiritual leaders, the office of elders, we need to build exactly according to the pattern which he has shown us in his word. And it turns out that God has very specific instructions, not only for the office of elders, but especially for the individual men whom he calls to occupy that office. As we see primarily laid out, but not exclusively, uh, in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, uh, God has given clear qualifications to determine if a man is really called by him to be an elder and is fit for the weighty and noble task. And make no mistake, uh, these are some high standards that God demands from such a man. Uh, standards that give me a knot in my stomach every time I read them. But we must understand that the reason why God requires such high standards and qualifications for this office is because elders are called to shepherd the flock, to pastor the church in such a way where they serve as an accurate reflection of the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. If there's anything excellent we see about all of these qualities, it's because they are but shadows of the excellency of Jesus and the good shepherd and the perfect pastor that he is for his church. And so therefore, as a church, we cannot lower the standard to fit whatever perceived needs of the church at a given time. To, to lower these standards would be to lower and diminish the glory of Christ himself. And so it is to the glory of God that the church must hold firm and hold high the God-given requirements of the office of elder. Now, there's a lot to cover, uh, but let me break it down into uh, these four broad categories, uh, the biblical qualifications that we see for an elder. This is what a man must have and must be to be qualified to the office of elder. First is a calling. Okay? And second is godliness. Third is giftedness. And fourth is love. Calling, godliness, giftedness, and love. Now, initially, I wanted to cover all of these today, but it would be way too long and you'd all be uh, stuck here until dinner time, and we can't have that. Uh, so for your sake and for your sanity, against my initial desires, we'll cover only about half today and we'll have to finish off the rest next Sunday, Lord willing, with a part three. But with that said, let me begin by first talking about the calling 
a man must have to the office of elder. Namely, that he must be called by God, not by men. He must have a divine calling. And as basic as that sounds, it's, it's really a crucial test to see whether a man is really being called by God um, instead of just people or, or circumstance. And what I mean is that a lot of times churches can find themselves appointing elders simply out of necessity because they need somebody at that given, given point in time to fill that role. And although it's good that churches recognize the need for spiritual leaders in the church, the trouble is letting the pragmatics of the situation override the principles of Scripture and, and, and a serious examination of the man to see if he's qualified. And a lot of times in these kinds of scenarios, those men are urged and kind of thrown into the office of elder, though they have neither a desire nor sense of calling to be that's what it's like being called by man but this goes directly against what first peter 5 2 says that elders are to shepherd the flock exercising oversight not under compulsion but willingly if someone has to drag you into it you shouldn't be doing it people shouldn't have to push you into it but but taking up the office must not be, you see, it must not be the, the church's decision. But it must fundamentally be God's decision and calling, which the church is called to affirm. In other words, let me put it like this. The church does not make elders. God makes elders. God is the one who makes a man a shepherd for his flock. And the church is called to simply recognize the man that God has clearly called to the office. God decides and the church discerns what God has decided through biblical testing and examination. Now, how can we know that it is really God's decision that a man has been called to the ministry and office of elder? Uh, this is a common question I get from Young men, especially considering going into full-time ministry, the same thing applies just to men in the church in general who feel called to the office of elder, whether vocationally or not. So how can a man discern for himself that God is really the one calling him to it, not man? Well, let me offer a, a practical litmus test that is derived from Scripture. This is what I tell every man feeling called to the ministry. There's a threefold test. First, and most importantly, actually, you must have a deep sense of internal calling. Look at 1 Timothy 3.1. It says that if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, if anyone aspires, then he desires a noble task. Aspires and desires. Do you have this sense of aspiring to the office? Is there a tug on your heart? Now, you can aspire for the wrong reasons, but first things first. Is there a profound internal desire to pastor God's flock as an elder? In fact, the word here 
for he desires a noble task, it's a very, very strong word. It's not just, okay, well, I'm willing to give it a try. Yes, I'd like to be more involved. Yes, my wife keeps nudging at me. You've got to get more involved at church. Please, no, 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 no. We're talking about an intense longing, a burning desire, a fire in the belly, if you will. I'm talking about a desire that only the Holy Spirit can place in the heart of a man whom he is calling. Uh, If I can describe to you what it's like, it's this unexplainable, sometimes feels irrational, but irresistible sense of wanting to bear the responsibility of other people's souls. Now, that is crazy. That's why I say it's irrational. It is insane. It's hard enough minding your own spiritual well-being. But wanting to be responsible for others? And to make matters worse, Hebrews 13, 17 says that spiritual leaders are called to watch over souls and they'll have to give an account to God for them. If you bear the title of elder in the church, God will hold you accountable for how well each of the sheep were shepherded. And if the sheep were not fed well, then God will hold each elder individually responsible simply by virtue of the office. And compounded with James 3.1, not many of you should decide to be teachers, for by teaching, you will be judged more strictly. I mean, my goodness, the Bible is not selling this thing very well. Who wants to be held accountable for other people's souls? I mean, you've got to be out of your mind. Because who in their right mind wants to be judged by God with greater strictness for the responsibility of instructing his people? I don't. And yet I do. I don't know why. I, I can't help it. I must be nuts. I am nuts. But that's what it is. I, I, I almost like to call it a, a holy insanity. It's, it's this unexplainable desire that can only be explained by the irresistible call by the Holy Spirit being seared onto the heart. Because this care for souls is God's desire being planted into the man whom he has called and appointed. And only the will of God can override what is otherwise complete insanity and make it into a holy insanity. Look, let, let me say something. I, I haven't really addressed this yet as we've been studying through the office of elders, partly because I don't think I have to belabor the point to our church, but let's talk about it for good measure. Now, the Bible is clear that only men are called to the office of elder, not women. And when hearing that, especially in our day, it's possible that some of the women or even some of the men might sincerely wonder, well, why not? not fair well first of all let's clarify this statement it's not that men are called to be elders but women are not both men and women are not called to be elders as men for for being men and for being women okay this is not ultimately a, a a men versus women thing but it's because only qualified men 
are called to be elders. This is not about men versus women, but this is about called versus not called. And God, in his goodness and wisdom, has chosen to not call women to the role of elder, just as he, in his goodness and wisdom and beautiful order, has not called men to the noble and weighty task of bearing children in the womb and giving birth and breastfeeding. No matter how much our society wants to say chest feeding, which is just weird and gross. And so understand this, that all women and almost all men in the church cannot be elders. Very, very few men compared to the whole rest of the body of Christ in all generations and in all times are called by God to the office of elder. And if a woman wants to be an elder, yea, if a man who is not called and qualified wants to be an elder, then both those men and women have no idea what they're asking for. And if they knew what they were asking for, they would not ask for it. I never asked for it. I never wanted it. I mean, seriously. When I first sensed this irresistible call brewing in my heart as a young college student, I spent the whole year running away from it, like the good prophet Jonah that I was. Telling God, no way. That is crazy. I'm sorry you got the wrong guy. Who is sufficient for these things? I can't bear the weight of souls. I'm hardly put together myself. But only the will of God can irresistibly call a man to the office, whereby, although he trembles at the thought of it, and no matter how much he tries to run away from it, he cannot shake off that desire burning in his heart to nonetheless want to step into the office with fear and trembling and to bear the names of God's people on the breastpiece of his heart to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. This is the initial sign that it must be or could be Truly and solely the will of God, the Holy Spirit saying to the man, before I formed you in in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you to shepherd my people. This is the internal sense of calling. Every elder must fundamentally be given to at least begin to discern that they might really be called by God and not by men. And then secondly... There must be external confirmation of the calling by your wife if you are married. Now we'll unpack this more later as it's drawn from the principle of having a faithful marriage as part of the qualification of an elder. But a man's wife must affirm that he is in fact biblically qualified to be an elder and called by God to shepherd the church. If she can't see that you're called, then ain't nobody going to see that you're called. And if people in the church say that you're called to the ministry, but your wife says no, then it's not your wife that's wrong. It's everyone else that's wrong telling you that you're called because they don't know you as well as they should. Because a man's wife knows the real man for who he is. A, A church sees what a man is outside in public, but a wife sees what a man is inside in private and what a man is inside the home that he really is 
And then thirdly, there must also be the external confirmation of the calling by the church. Well, I mean, it's very simple. If, if the sheep don't recognize you as shepherd, if they don't recognize you're called by God, then you're a shepherd without sheep, which is kind of an oxymoron. You're just a guy in the field with a stick. Your local church is the flock whom you're called to shepherd as an elder. And if the sheep don't know you as a shepherd, then you ain't a shepherd, plain and simple. And so you see, this is the threefold litmus test. It begins with this internal supernatural desire where a man senses in his heart that God is calling me to shepherd his people. And then if he is really called, then if he is married, then his wife must and will say, God is calling you. I can see it and I can attest to it. And then the church will also say, God is calling you. We can see it. We can attest to it. And so that's the first major category, that a man must have this divine, supernatural calling to the office. Second is that a man must be godly. Uh, This is the prime focus of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, the main bread and butter of these passages. Now, before we dive in, I want you to notice something about these qualifications, or specifically, I want you to notice what's not there. There is nothing about education, wealth, charisma, success in the eyes of the world. You know, I I just noticed the strangest thing that there seems to be in the church, this subconscious assumption that elders are generally those who tend to be quite educated and successful in their very white-collar careers. Uh, And often because of that, they tend to be wealthy and give the most to the church. And somehow along the way, what's happened is that we've started to think like the world. That if a man is successful at running a business or that he is well-learned and well-respected in his career, which is great in and of itself, but that if he is those things, then that must mean that he's probably quite capable at leading the church, as if that has any connection to his spiritual fitness. But, you know, this shows that we're just like Israel. We want, we want to see, we, we, we look for tall, aristocratic men like Saul, and not the little blue-collar ruddy shepherd boys like David. And we forget that God has chosen what is low and despised in the world to shame the wise. I'm not discriminating against wealthy, successful, educated men. They're blessings to the church, and God calls many such men to serve as elders too. But I'm just trying to ask, where are the fishermen serving as elders in the church today? Where are the carpenters? Have we forgotten that our Lord Jesus was a carpenter from Nazareth? You know what Nazareth was? It was out in the boonies. Hillbillysville. Which is why they would say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Come on, what a joke. What does he know? But what makes a man qualified and capable of shepherding God's people is to be filled with the Spirit of God. That's what godliness is. 
walking with the Lord, bearing the fruit of His Spirit, delighting in His Word, wisdom from above, not from below. That's what God is chiefly concerned with for the office of elders. If you notice in both passages, in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, it begins with this thesis statement, if you will, and Paul actually repeats it twice uh, to Titus, that an elder, an overseer, must be above reproach. Now, what does that mean? Well, the word reproach means blame or rebuke. And so to be above reproach means to be above blame. It means to be blameless or irreproachable. Now, blameless does not mean sinless. Okay? If that were the case, I mean, we'd have no elders in the church anywhere. But Genesis 6, Genesis 6-9 says that Noah was blameless. Job says that Job was blameless and upright. But it doesn't mean that they were sinless. But blamelessness or being above reproach means that your life and your character is in such a way where you are above accusation and criticism that would quickly discredit and easily discredit your devotion to Christ and service to his church. To put it another way, a man who is above reproach is someone who, if anyone brings a charge against him that he is actually unfaithful to Christ in some way or unfaithful to his family, that the congregation's immediate response would not be, oh yeah, I'm not surprised. Yeah, I mean, the guy just, you could tell he, he, he loves money. Or, you know, he, he's always going on power trips. Um, it's really hard to talk to. He's very argumentative. Or, you know, he, he always seemed a little too flirty and just kind of touchy with the women in the congregation. I'm not surprised by that. That being very much under and subject to rightful reproach. But to be above reproach is for the congregation's instinctual reaction to be that is really hard to believe. From what I've known and seen him to be through all these years. And if, you're, if what you're saying is true, then I am utterly stunned and heartbroken. You see, to be above reproach is to be above accusation. Accusation that quickly and easily gains traction. Because you are known and trusted by the church as a man faithful to God, worthy of imitation. And that's the positive way to understand it. That an elder, being above reproach, means that he is held as an example of godliness for the church to imitate. Which tells us that that these qualities in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, they're not exclusive to elders. None of these things are, are free for people to not pursue or abandon. This is, this is just godliness. This is what all Christians are called to be. This is, this is very relevant to every believer in this room, not just, not just to elders or aspiring elders. But elders are especially called to the highest standard and the clearest demonstration of these godly characteristics because the church is called to consider the outcome of their way of life and to imitate their faith, Hebrews 13, 7. And so with that said, When we look at both passages, what we find is that God is concerned with two primary aspects of an elder's godliness. That 
he is first individually one who has godly character and also that he has a godly home. And just as a heads up, we'll only get through the individual character part and pick up next week on what it means to have a godly home. Now, there are a lot of these characteristics and attributes and qualifications dispersed throughout 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Uh, Some appear in both, some are uh, only in one, some are more emphasized in one than the other. Uh, But for clarity, I've just kind of collected them into three main groups. Devotion, posture, and lifestyle. And as I go through them, you may have to flip back and forth between the two passages to find them in the text, so I leave that to you, or you can just listen and, and follow along. But first, uh, a number of these characteristics have to do with a man's devotion to God, really tackling how he loves God, how he walks with God, and how he is before God. Uh, Something about this man must be clearly evident in the sight of people that he really belongs wholeheartedly to Christ. This is a man who does not belong to himself. Now, what does that look like? Well, 1 Timothy 3, 2 lists some qualities. An elder must be sober-minded. It means that his mind is saturated with the Word of God, such that the Bible governs his thinking. Not just in the context of doing church and ministry, but in all of life. And you can tell that he is always endeavoring to process the world and process his own life through the lens of Scripture. And next, an elder must also be self-controlled. Now, this doesn't just mean that you're a disciplined person. Although that's great, but if that were the case, I mean, any guy who goes to a military boot camp could, could qualify for this. But, but a biblically self-controlled man is a man who is controlled by the Bible. Biblical principles govern his behavior rather than his fleshly instincts or just even the patterns of the world. There's a godly wisdom and discernment about him. And with that, he is also to be respectable. Uh, Simply put, for all these reasons, he is worthy of imitation and admirable. He, He rightly commands respect from fellow believers, not because he's proud, but because he's exemplary in his devotion to Christ, such that the church wants to and ought to emulate how he thinks and how he lives. Uh, Titus 1.8 also mentions a few that along with self-control, Paul also mentions being upright. This means that he is a, a just man based on the standard of God's justice. In other words, there's a godly integrity about him that stems from his fear of God. Even if he comes across a situation where There's a harder thing to do. He has a habit of doing whatever it takes to please God and only God. He doesn't make decisions based on circumstance, but he has a a track record of making decisions based on principle and biblical truth. Uh, He must also be holy, which simply summarizes all that we were talking about, being devoted to God, being set apart unto God, consecrated unto God. And he must be disciplined. Again, this is a discipline that comes from a man's conviction It is no longer he who lives, but Christ who lives in him. That is to say that a disciplined man lives like he is really owned by his master to whom he is accountable. He's not just a free spirit that does whatever is right in his own eyes, 
but people know him to be devoted to the will of God in all of life. He must also be a lover of good. Now, what does this mean? It means that he has good taste. Uh, not just in food, when we're talking about music, but he has good spiritual taste. He loves righteousness. He loves truth. He loves humility. He loves when people don't make much of him. He enjoys making much of Christ alone. And he loves and relishes opportunities to fear God above fearing man instead of avoiding this, those kinds of situations. In short, he loves what God loves. That's what he must be known for. And so you can get an idea thus far of how all these qualities really speak to a man's personal devotion to God. But on top of that, there's an important qualification that must not be overlooked, which is that, his, that he must be mature and tested in his devotion. 1 Timothy 3.6 says that he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Here's the wisdom of God on display. And he knows that some men are particularly passionate and zealous. He has wired them that way for his glory. But an undiscerning church can be wowed by the sheer passion and spiritual energy of a young man, a recent convert, impressed by his enthusiasm. Oh my goodness, look, look, look at how this guy devotes his time to evangelism, discipling people in the church. He's a leader. Surely he's called the shepherd of the flock. But God is saying, wait. It's great that he gives his time to the church. But the church needs to give him time to be tested, to be refined, to be pruned, to, to become a weathered man through trials and tribulations in his life as God sends them his way if he is really called by him. To see what kind of a man he really is without the distractions and the, the fanfare of initial enthusiasm. And it's a very dangerous thing when especially young men whether young in age or young in faith or both, really, when they get quickly elevated to the position of authority without the grit and grind of the test of time. That is a sure recipe for blowing his head up and fostering a proud spirit instead of the spirit of a humble servant. An elder must first prove himself faithful in the little things over lots of time before he can be entrusted with much things namely the spiritual welfare of God's sheep. In the same vein, as I mentioned last week, it is imperative that a church thoroughly tests and examines a man over a long period of time before appointing him to the office of elder. It is not something that should be taken lightly or just appointed on a whim. Just like we see in the parable of the sower, anyone can exhibit devotion to God initially, even with great joy and excitement, sprout really fast. But time will tell what is really underneath and bring to surface the genuineness of one's faith and devotion to Christ. And so that's the first group of characteristics, devotion to God. Next is the man's posture. Uh, if devotion has to do with how he walks before God, 
posture then has to do with how he walks before others. Uh, how his love for God spills over into his love and interaction with others. Titus 1.7 says that an elder must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. There must be a humility about him. Again, that doesn't make much of himself, but makes much of others, and ultimately for the glory of Christ. Uh, he's not argumentative, but is winsome. He's gracious, even towards other quick-tempered people. And that's what Paul's getting at in 1 Timothy 3.3, that he must not be violent, but gentle and not quarrelsome. You know, this is one of the most important qualities of an elder that's often and, and easily overlooked. Having this soft and tender heart towards other people. Now, why is this important? Because as an elder, you're called to minister to people of all kinds. Uh, broken people. Difficult people. Sometimes they don't even know that they're difficult. Suffering people. Confused people. And you have to be gentle and patient and tender-hearted. You don't need to be not domineering. Or sorry, you don't need to be domineering to be not gentle. Just because you're not an authoritarian doesn't mean that you're necessarily gentle. You can have good intentions, but if you do not have a soft heart for others, then, then you can end up crushing people with hard speech, hard requirements, or an overly black and white way of thinking that you impose on other people's consciences for matters that are not black and white. An elder must be like his Savior, of whom Isaiah 42 says, a bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick, and a, a candle wick that's the flame has practically gone out, it's, it's barely glowing, that he will not quench. Because he knows how to speak so softly that his breath doesn't blow out the, the dying wick. There's a profound gentleness with how Jesus deals with brokenhearted people. And so should his ministers be as a reflection of his likeness. And the third and last group is the man's lifestyle. To put it plainly, 1 Timothy 3.3 and Titus 1.7 says that he must not be a drunkard. Um, I think that's self-explanatory. Do you really want a drunk pastor? Um, I mean, even the sober ones are annoying enough as is. Uh, why would you add drunkenness to that? But obviously, this goes directly against the, the virtue of self-control. A, a Christian who is prone to drunkenness reveals much more than one's taste in beverages. But, but it reveals a spiritual instability that you're controlled by the passions of your flesh. In the same way, an elder must be above the reproach of being a lover of money, not greedy for gain. To live his life in a way where people don't have to doubt or be confused or question. You cannot serve two masters, plain and simple. You can't serve God and money. Uh, but, but with all these things, if you can see the big picture, uh, all of this is describing a, a lifestyle that's not self-serving and self-absorbed. 
Someone who, who lives to drink and feed his flesh. Or someone who lives for money that lives for selfish gain. But by contrast, to put it positively, an elder's lifestyle must be known as self-giving, generous with his whole self. Hence, Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, 2, he must be hospitable. And hospitality is a key qualification because it reveals a lot of a man's heart. What man in the church is opening up his home to invite people from the church, not only into his home, but into his life, so that his life might be put on display? That's discipleship. And if he doesn't have a home that's practically viable for hospitality for whatever reason, it's not about the house, but, but it's about the spirit of hospitality. Does he embody it? Is he always greeting people? Is he talking to people, building deep relationships, opening his life and heart to people? That is a hospitable heart, a hospitable man. Is he approachable? Is he warm? You know, there are a lot of guys who have stored a lot of knowledge in their brains, but they don't have love. And they might think they're intelligent because they read a lot of books, but they are sorely unintelligent when it comes to people skills. And that's a serious disqualifier because ministry is all about people. And as much as being a shepherd is all about sheep. And again, may I remind us all that these qualifications are not free for the congregation to ignore as if it's only for elders. Every Christian should strive to grow in this manner because godliness is the call for every believer. And hospitality is a big one. You know, you you could be generous with your money to the church and that's great. But all the while, you can be very stingy with your life, with your home, with your heart by being a very private and reserved individual, which is the opposite of hospitality. And we must understand that sharing life, giving of ourselves to others in the church, that is the calling of church membership. And all the more it is required of elders to serve as chief examples in that regard for the church to follow. And this hospitality is also to bleed over to even the unbelieving world, to outside the church, not only inside the church. 1 Timothy 3, 7. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now, generally speaking, this is talking about his basic public reputation. Um, I mean, he can't be a criminal uh, or he can't be known by his coworkers for being unethical all the time. Uh, but, But also, I want you to consider... How can a man be well thought of by outsiders outside the church if he's not spending time with them? You know, I I almost wish some Christians would actually make some friends with utterly unbelieving pagans who cuss up a storm every other sentence. I'm not saying go cuss with them, but to actually be friends with them and learn to talk to them. Because then you might start to learn how to talk to people from one human being to another. And instead of just being a bunch of socially awkward Christians who only know how to talk to other Christians with all this weird Christian jargon, I mean, who started this weird church culture of, oh, brother, how, how are you? Is it well with your soul? Peace be unto you. I mean, that's just weird. 
I mean, seriously, just stop being weirdos. That's not what God has, God has called, it to, called us to godliness, not weirdness. But, I mean, think of Jesus. What did they call him, even mockingly, in jest and as an offense? This man is a friend of sinners. He even dines with tax collectors and prostitutes. He never condoned it. But he knew how to build relationships with them. He knew how to make them laugh. So that in the context of those relationships, he would call them to repentance, just as he did with uh, Matthew, Levi, the tax collector, who turned from his ways and followed Jesus. You see, that too is what an elder must be like, able to connect with and, and befriend sinners of all sorts. Because that's what Jesus is like toward us. And that's why we love him, that he came to befriend and welcome and save sinners like us. You see, all of these characteristics and qualifications, they are meant to be reflections of the glory of Christ to point us to him. That Jesus is the Holy Son of God, sent by the Father, anointed and appointed by the Spirit to save sinners. And though being God and having every right to come and judge sinners and condemn the world, he came instead as a humble servant, entering this world as a human being, born of woman to save sinners. And how did he do that? By living a life of his own holy devotion to the Father. By living a life of real human sinlessness and perfect obedience that we could never live, that we all fail to live. And yet this life that he lived, he lived not for his own sake, but he came, he, he, he came not to serve himself, but he came to give of himself in love and mercy for sinners because this very holy life above reproach that he lived, it was him accomplishing perfect human righteousness on behalf of sinners he came to save. He was taking their place and ultimately he would go to take their place on the cross to be punished for their sin. You see, his whole life was not lived for himself but for his enemies like you and me. So that all who confess their sin and trust in what he has done to save them from their sin, he gives to them all of his merits of the perfect holiness and spotless blamelessness that God demands that we might be considered righteous in his sight and enter into his heavenly kingdom by faith. This is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ the good shepherd who laid down his life for his beloved sheep. And this is the high standard of what elders are called to model. That is the glory of our Lord Jesus. And the congregation is to follow their living example so that all together we as one church might grow in the likeness of Christ and reflect his beauty in the gospel to a world lost in sin and in desperate need of returning to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Church, let us pursue these things by faith. All together, all of us, with our eyes fixed on Jesus. And may the Lord be gracious to build up our church to that end for his glory. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we come 
before your instruction in your word. The qualifications of an elder. We all together as one church say, who is sufficient for these things? Lord, none of us are truly above reproach in a perfect and exhaustive way. But we thank you that Jesus is the only one who is holy, utterly blameless, perfectly above reproach. He is our hope and confidence and that we have put our hope in him that we might live in him and grow in his likeness. Would you help us to do that? Help us to reflect his majesty. And as we now prepare to to take the, the bread and the cup, would you use these ordinary elements for the extraordinary purpose of reminding us that Christ is the spotless Lamb of God who gave himself for us. Help us to trust him, to abide in him, and to pursue his likeness by faith in him. We ask in his name. Amen.